For July 19th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast. Episode 107. A Dragon Ball Z solution to an Inception problem. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve, except for this week when it definitely does. I am your host, Matthew Rather, from the left coast of America, here to overthink Inception. And before we do anything else, this is a blanket spoiler warning for all of Inception up to the very end of the movie. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want your, your surprises spoiled by us, stop now. Right now. It's all a dream. Or is it? <laughs> or, or it is. Or is it? Or it is. So wait, is it is it possible to spoil a movie that ends on an open question like that? Like, you can you spoil the short story, the lady or the tiger, by saying at the end it's either the lady or the tiger? Can you spoil Total Recall by saying he either got his ass to Mars or he didn't get his ass to Mars? <laughs> Well, that's. I Can mean, you spoil sliding doors by saying that either long-haired Gwyneth Paltrow or short-haired Gwyneth Paltrow? Long-haired. Can yeah. you spoil the wire by saying? <laughs> well, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you son of a bitch! Oh shit! I'm gonna have to bleep that out, Jordan. You asshole. <laughs> I live to please. You're as bad as Sheila. Um. <laughs> Oh, God damn it. Uh, all right. Here's the panel. Uh, what is your totem? Question of the week. What are you going to make your totem so that you are sure that this podcast, for example, is, it, is not a dream? Do you remember how you got onto this podcast? Uh, well, I, was, I don't know. Let's, let's, uh, let's start in alphabetical order with Peter Fenzel. Woohoo! I know how I got on this podcast because my computer's still broken and you guys call me on the phone. So I guess that means that this is uh, this is some sort of fiction or reality or something or other. Okay, so my totem, um, I don't know. I, I want to think about something that I want to carry around with me all the time, but the cooler I make it, the more likely someone else is going to want to take it from me just sort of to check it out. So I was first thinking that I wanted it to be a tiny little, like, bronze head of Hitler that would be so <laughs> offensive that no one would want to touch it. <laughs> then I was like, no. If I saw that, I would be like, what the hell? And then I would grab it. I'd be like, what is that? And I want to look at it. But no, so I need it to be something that's, like, really boring um so i don't know i mean i guess i guess i could make it like i mean he already had dice in the movie i was thinking like a banaka spray but then i have to be careful not to use it up but that would be something i want to have with me all the time that'd be pretty useful um so i don't know i guess i guess what i would say is that i would make it i would you know what? i'm gonna go with the little little bronze head of hitler i'm gonna go with that i'm gonna say and, and i'm gonna and i'm gonna feel his mustache and the texture of his mustache is something that no one is gonna be able to replicate because you know what because that's just that's just how i roll because i when i'm when i'm in a, something that is so effed up that like you can't be in somebody else's dream is really what, what i would put in there so there you go I, hey pete i you notice that there have been donations to the uh the peter fenzel um Natural Disaster Relief Fund. I know. That's amazing. I mean, I don't need them or want them that badly. I mean, I do want them, and I do appreciate the help. And it is, I am walking around the concrete floor with my clothes and garbage bags. But, like, um, and I do appreciate it. I'm not like the starving, the starving children in Biafra, as my mother would say. 
So if it, you've got the money that you could to spare and you want to help a brother out, I appreciate it. But please don't do it at the expense of other philanthropic activities. Have you drew that? We're through that. For we're five cents a day. Benefits what? single. Benefits single. We are the P. We're in. The, we're in the basement. <laughs> we yeah. are the Michael ones. John is actually. Uh, he's raising money for me. He's actually just raising money for himself. We um, are the but, ones yeah, who take always, the root beer yeah. cans and make a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> There's a but it will go right into the podcast when I buy a new headset, and that's what it's going to go for. So that's, oh. that's good stuff. Hey, that's a that's a yep. great thing. So you've 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 helped yep. Pete podcast. Um, yeah. uh, pushing right along, Mr. Mark Lee, totem. All right, my totem, I'm holding it in my hand right now, actually. It's a frequent singer card that I got from my favorite karaoke place in New York, Duet, uh, well, favorite karaoke franchise. They have two locations, Duet 35 and 48. Um, they give a free frequent singer card. It fills up with stamps for each $20 you spend. And I'm looking at it and the intricate connectivity of the stamps for each time, for each $20 I've spent, and the particular folds in the corners. And it makes me think about the last time I went to karaoke, and the next time I will go to karaoke, and the next time I'll have a hunt, my, my next one hour free of singing. And that is how I know this is not a dream. But you can't, it? it can't be something that I can see. What is in my pocket? What do you mean? The, the, the totem is nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you have, to, you have to take it out to check it. It can't be something that I can see. Well, you can go well, to have a quality that other people, yeah. You'd have to be you'd have to have a tactile quality generally, right? Because like other people are going to see it when you take it out, uh-huh. but you can't have anybody know the thing about it that you know, right? So um, and so he so he gets it embossed and he runs his finger over the intricate <laughs> kind of exactly. About. I mean, yes, but if it's embossed, then he can't stamp it and get more karaoke. <laughs> He's got By the way, my head of Hitler is going to be embossed with Mark Lee's initials on the back just to mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, uh, John Perich is next. What up? What up? So my totem is going to be fairly utilitarian, but it has, has some personal connection to me because I was looking at my dresser and this was the first thing that struck me that I could use. It's my $19 Target wristwatch. Which I got because I've I've always been a fan of cheap watches because you know if you lose them you you haven't lost anything too too terrible so it's a you know it's a fairly cheap watch with a big obvious digital face that I usually wear in a kind of weird way on the inside of my wrist and I lost this watch actually a couple a little over a year ago at this point so I went back to Target to get another one and I wasn't sure what I was going to get but I found the exact same brand of watch and I thought you know why not be constant about it so. I think I've actually lost it several times, and every time I end up buying the exact same cheap $19 Target digital wristwatch. So because nobody else would choose to wear a watch this cheap-looking in a dream if they could outfit themselves in anything, you know, glossy like an Omega or a Rolex or something like that, I'll know if I'm looking at it and looking at the weird bits of fuzz on the Velcro strap, and it's non-functioning face with the start and reset buttons on weird sides and it's never quite sure what mode set it's in that i'll be i'll be in the real world excellent you will be in the real world and target you know that no one would dream up target if they could uh (laughs) (laughs) if they could populate the world with the sort of businesses that they cared to uh to do jordan stokes I think because uh, all of the totems that we see in the movie are they're either toys or gaming pieces of some kind, and I think that's significant. My totem is going to be one of those little cars from the Game of Life, 
with a particular pattern of boy and girl children in it. And then uh, to, to take it an- another level, uh, they will be calibrated so that if I press those down into the car, they will, uh, they will resist at different levels. There'll be tiny little springs underneath them. And I will feel that against my thumb, and I will know whether it is real or whether it is not. Excellent. Didn't and we, finally, didn't oh, yeah. Two, didn't we only see two totems in the movie, though? Three. The spinny top. We saw three. What was the third? The uh, chess piece. The chess piece, the, the spinny top that Leo's character and the has. Loaded and the loaded die. die. The loaded die. Yes, that's correct. Which I guess, I guess you roll it and you see what, you see what comes up. Or I guess you, you just know what, what side it's weighted on or something like that. Yeah, I think yeah, it was the You can tell the weighting of it. Yeah. Uh, mine is a. Um, you know those rubber finger puppets that are little monsters that have googly eyes and kind of rubber arms sticking up uh, yeah. and, and uh, a, a big mouth with rubber teeth in it? Um, that's that's going to be mine, but it will have a unique texture on the inside, and I will be the only one who slides his finger uh, up into the finger puppet. And every time I do, I'm going to do a little dance with it and say, Hi! I'm Mr. Totem! This is my totem! It's not a dream! Wow! Yeah, so I thought yours was going to be a French tickler. Oh, <laughs> that's a little bit too rated R for this podcast. I, I have to say, uh, rather, if you if you do that song and dance every time you feel your totem, that will still be more restrained than Leo DiCaprio's performance in Inception. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, Starting in... Start- hey, guys, mine's going to be a 50-foot tree from the Pacific Northwest carved ritualistically with the heads of animals. Which you will carry with you at all times. <laughs> giant, giant straps on my back. Yeah, you're gonna, exactly. you're gonna wash up. You're gonna wash up on this guy's beach, and he's like, he had a pistol and this 50 foot tree carved with thunderbirds. <laughs> Mine is and, gonna and be. If uh, I don't have a severe back injury, I know I'm in someone's dream and not reality. Yeah, <laughs> yes, right. exactly. Uh, mine is gonna be a copy of the movie Total Recall and a copy of the movie Being John Malkovich. But one is in the other DVD case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's exactly. That's yeah, I said. That's what I should have said. Mine is going to be a copy of the movie Total Recall, but in the DVD case will be a copy of the movie Being John Malkovich. All right. John, and John will- Malkovich is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> you wanted to start us off, John. So uh, I know you have a rant that's been. Uh, you say it's been gathered. You've been gathering ahead of steam for like three days. So uh, uncork, I do. I uncork do have a rant. that and like uh, let it all out. Here I go. I'm going to pop it loose. So on Friday, we had our thousandth post and a think tank commemorating it in which I talked about my desire for pop culture and geek culture in particular to get smarter. In other words, for for geeks to stop defending the objects of their passion as, oh, it's just good fun or, oh, it's good enough so long as it's reasonably faithful to genre conventions, e.g. Spider-Man 2 or the original Fantastic Four movie or the Daredevil movie or really a long and fairly painful list at this point. Hang on, and, I have to interrupt. Did anyone try to defend the Daredevil movie for any reason at any time? I've heard. Oh, I've yeah, seen, totally. I've seen it done, what? folks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The less famous Ben Affleck is, the better that movie is, because Ben Affleck is very distracting in that movie. So the less successful he is as a human being, then like the better that movie gets in retrospect, to the point where it becomes like a solid B-grade action movie. <laughs> so, anyway. So, so anyhow, but my, my point in that rant was that you know, my desire for geek culture to get smarter, and I think Inception is a perfect example of how good a movie can be if it treats its themes intelligently and 
takes its audience seriously. I think that's, I mean, that's an example of exactly what I've been looking for. And yes, Christopher Nolan, thank you. This is what I had in mind. I mean, it doesn't just take the notion of, oh, what if everything here is a dream and we don't know what's real and what's not, which has, which has been done in movies before. No, I, uh, I, I, know, I know it's real because <laughs> I have missed a totem. <laughs> so as we know, it's been done before in movies with varying levels of intensity, but Inception is the first movie I've seen in a while that takes that concept and really marries it to every aspect of the production, of the writing, the acting, the overall story, and ties everything together very neatly and is still a compelling, watchable, entertaining, fun, tense movie above and beyond that. So, guys, I mean, if a movie like Inception is possible, there's no reason we should be defending Spider-Man 3. Or, well, Spider-Man 3 is terrible. Exactly. Or, you know, some, yeah. other, some other terrible superhero movie that people are like, oh, or, or like Hellboy. There's a good one, the original Hellboy. Hellboy's good! What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't want to turn this into, yet an, into another argument when we could be talking more about how great Inception is. But my point is, okay. I'm, I'm frustrated with the ability of geeks to defend a lot of shoddy workmanship in the name of, oh, it's, it's sort of cool because there's one cool bit when a thoroughly smart and at the same time cool movie like Inception is possible. I want the bar to be raised that high. There, also well over, also done. well made. Like you know what I mean? Like it's been yes. it's become almost the quality of our action movies and especially the action sequences in our action movies has become so uniformly awful that it it's almost uh it's almost um redundant to say that that the action sequences are visual gibberish and and that they just make no sense but this was the action was shot well it was really beautiful to look at like uh, on a lot of levels like as a you know as a film the photography was beautiful you know the cgi was well integrated into the uh, uh, uh into the live photography it um, the on a storytelling level, it was good. On a performance level, I think it was good. On a uh, you know, it, it just it just was a good movie. And, and the way I know it was a good movie was that in the right before the last cut to black in the theater that I that I was in in a packed matinee at at uh, you know three thirty on a Sunday. By the way, when uh, you know when I usually go and it's usually like you know me and two couple two teenage couples who just want to make out in the back row. Um, and me standing there salivating and, and rubbing my market. fingers yes. together uh. and, and sticking my, my, my uh, googly-eyed finger puppet up and saying, Hi! I'm the totem! You guys should leave room for the Holy Spirit! Uh, <laughs> on such a day as that, the theater was packed. Um, like, uh, couldn't get a seat packed. And... Uh, you know, and at the last moment when the before the final cut to black, before we were just going to see like, does the top fall over or not? You know, um, we. Uh... Oh, that reminds me of something else I want to talk about. Another reason why I think. This <laughs> Right, right at that, right at that very moment, uh, a woman screamed, "No!" In the audience, right, right when it became clear that we were not going to find out for sure what, um, what once. Here's here's why I think this was a good movie. Um, the it was in some sense uh, generically, I think we can say it was a heist movie, right? And it was a uh, yes. 
it was a one last it, it was of the of the genre of heist it was a subset of a one last job movie right yeah. and um right. and yep. you know all that there were reasons you know he wanted to see his family again he can't get back into uh he can't get back into the united states um but okay so all heist movies are also sort of psychological heist movies that is to say there's a psychological hurdle that has to be overcome for the main character as well as a plot hurdle that has to be overcome to steal the stuff from the room right um yeah what what this movie did that was really interesting was it made those two things the same you know that is to say leonardo dicaprio was the locked room um you know, uh, in, in which the 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 real thing had to be stolen from. Yeah, there was an issue with the guy and his father and the safe, but that was a MacGuffin. It was really uh, Leo's mind that you know that was the mind that was at issue, and um, that and that also was the heist in a sense. And I, you know, I mean, yeah. I think that's really clever. I think that's a really good uh, feat of storytelling. Okay, I'll shut up now. Okay, let me jump in here. So let me let me go back to John's larger point about. Inception and the standards as we hold our pop culture too, uh, John. I think the the phrase that you said is that um, because a movie like Inception is possible, then we shouldn't be excusing things like Spider Man Two and and Daredevil. Is that about? No, he right? said Spider Man Three. Spider Man Two is a lot better than Spider Man. Okay, Spider Man Three. Spider Man Three and Daredevil. <laughs> yeah, and yet, and yet, I. You did say uh, Spider Man Two, though, right? I did. I did say Spider Man Two, and while Spider Man Two is a better movie than Daredevil, I was still unsatisfied enough with it that I wouldn't put it on the same tier as, you know, the Iron Man Spider-Man movies 1? or the Batman movies. Uh, yeah, Iron Man Man or Dark Knight. Yeah. So yes, Mark, your your point's okay. accurate. All right. So you know, so so sure, a movie like Inception is possible, and that you know does speak to a higher standard that we should hold our movies to. That being said, I mean, it's important to keep in mind how titanic of an achievement that Inception seems to be. When I say that, I mean that, it, by all counts, it took Christopher Nolan a solid decade to write this movie. He's been working on this a very long time. This is, uh, I would say this is less of sort of like a, 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 a calling to greatness for other movies and more sort of a reminder that once a decade, once or twice a decade, uh, a, a work of such staggering genius comes about. That uh, you know that just really completely separates itself from the pack. Yeah, but John is and, saying so. Oh, sorry, Mark. I want to. I want you to finish. No, that's basically the, 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 my thrust of it. And that, is, like, we can't is, honestly is, expect that uh, that you know superhero movies that the next uh, the next Iron Man three, for example, or the God forbid the Avengers movie is going to somehow supposed to replicate some some feats of greatness that Inception did. But John is saying something something different, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, John. But I'm going to speak for you now. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> he's saying that he's saying John is saying that we have to calibrate our standards in in a way that is realistic. And yeah, this this movie is a, this was a really great movie. A lot of stuff, like a lot of stuff, went right for this movie. And and John is saying let's not jump to the knee jerk defense of something just because uh, just on sort of party uh, on because we have to uh, toe the party line uh, sure. when in fact it is not of this of the same quality. Like you know. I saw the I my life was made complete this last weekend when I saw the preview for Sharktopus. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh spoiler alert, the Sharktopus can walk on land. It can come at it can <laughs> the but shark, neither sharks nor octopi can do that. <laughs> the shark can come. Yes, uh but it is change my totem. My totem oh. is a shark. No, Benzel, it's actually a shark platypus hybrid, not a shark. <laughs> <laughs> 
my life was complete when I saw this uh, when I saw this movie, and I, you know, I think the scenes of like the backs of shapely coeds as they run away on the beach, like that just has to be a joke because there are so many better ways now of filming that rather than like you know set the camera stationary on the beach and have the coeds run away from it, so all you see is their you know uh, the their backs as they they recede into the distance and run out of frame. Like that's got to be a joke. Like, but uh, so anyway, so this well, sure it is. It's Sharktopus, of course. It's a joke. <laughs> yeah. It's a Roger Corman movie, this, for God's sake. This, yeah. whole, this yeah. whole movie is, like, gloriously crappy in a lot of ways. And, uh, but I, you know, but I know, what I'm, I know what I'm getting into, right? I think there's a kind of doublethink that we get in, into with a lot of, um, uh, with a lot of uh, movies, and especially a lot of movies that are, like, uh, what, sort of geek, geek darlings, Right. That, uh, you know, that, oh, it, it sort of has to be good. I kind of I have to like it because the, the position of the tribe is that they like it. And, and I think John is, is exhorting us to remember uh, that there is such a thing as artistic achievement. And uh, not a lot of things have it. Let me, uh, let me try to put words in your mouth. You want to, for there to be a scale where Inception is at the top and Shark Puss is at the bottom. And we should all swear that we will not... Uh, defend. We will not strongly defend the goodness of a movie like Spider-Man Two if it turns out to actually be, objectively speaking, about as good as Sharktopus. Less. I'd say that. Well, I, I mean, I guess if you put a gun to my head, I'd actually put. Um, I, I didn't mind Spider-Man Two as much. Spider-Man Three was the one that where I I uh, yeah. I wanted oh, to. No one's, uh, saying, no one's saying Spider-Man Three wasn't terrible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so good because so, that would be a problem. <laughs> now we can I agree on think, something. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll say I think Spider-Man Three was better than Spider-Man Two for me. Wow! Wait, hold on. All let right. me let me check my totem here. <laughs> <laughs> ah! No, not a dream. <laughs> um, yeah, I. Well, I, I mean, for my per- oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, what I want to say is like wherever i you know i don't know that sharktopus is a zero i think that that actually being honest about what you are nudges you up the up the ladder and i'm not sure that inception really is at a 10 you know my 10s no. are like kundun and like rules of the game and you know great 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 movies um but uh i i think you actually get points by sort of ad- admitting what you are but but what i'm saying is let's not um, let's not agree uh, to elevate a two up to an eight, uh, and just just agree to ignore reality. Hell, I'd, I'd I'd say let's agree not to elevate a four up to a seven. But then again, I'm I'm kind of a snob, as we've established. Yeah, well, I think we've established that. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. I mean, whatever. It, I feel like it's less interesting to talk about how good Inception is and more interesting to talk about it specifically, like, it. You know, talk about the movie. I mean, we can talk, it's a smart movie. There's a lot of scenes in it that are total throwaways. It's got a ton of really clunky exposition, right? It's not a perfectly crafted script. It's good, and it's, and it's a smart movie, but it's not like, oh, if I were to, to figure out how to write a movie, I should look at how Inception is done and it's going to teach me. You know what I mean? It has a lot of problems. It has a lot of wonderful parts in it, too. You know, so, I mean, I'm not going to say this is the pinnacle. And, and having seen the movie, thinking this is the pinnacle is not the thought that went through my head. That's just my perspective. No, no, no. I, mean, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was awesome. But, like, 
you know, it wasn't well, like that was the best movie I've ever seen. I was like, that was really interesting. Yeah, and it's well, also you know? it's an action movie, right? That also does not it does not ask you to totally switch your mind off in you know. In, uh, Most action movies don't, though. A lot of action movies are smart in some way or another because they're the, the hard work of lots of people over a long period of time. So, like, uh, even the, the uh, costume that somebody is wearing is somebody has a lot of training to put that together. You know, it's just not easy peasy stuff. No, tri- so. Triple X asks you to switch your mind off. <laughs> well, you know, Triple X, there's a man who died making Triple X, and, like, he slammed his head into that bridge, and he gave his life for those three X. Yeah, but that's. So I, I, mean, I don't know if you want to. I think I think Pete that we we can talk about filmmaking craftsmanship like in you know in the technical departments and and things like this like Triple X uh, there were there were a lot of sequences in Triple X that were really well lit and it was amazing <laughs> given what they were doing that the lighting exactly. that the lighting could be that good yes and I think that we can t- I uh, you know I think that that yes I think we actually have to acknowledge that and actually pretty much everything we see is really excellent in terms of craftsmanship right like if if you, if you jiggle yeah. the camera a little bit, like you, like you might do when you're making your home movie, uh, in a real movie you have to throw away that take. You know what I mean? No matter how no yeah. matter how good it was, and like the 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 standard of the crafts um, from the point of view of the average viewer is uniformly excellent across pretty much all wide release you know Hollywood movies. Hold but, on, hold on a second. Didn't we, didn't we just earlier say that uh, in action movies we're used to such kind of shoddy uh, shoddy workmanship, though, right? Weren't you just saying that? I, I think the editing is in you know you know what I mean in a lot of cases. Well, I think that the okay, vo- the- I think that the vocabulary. Uh, what I'm saying is I think the vocabulary has become incomprehensible to someone uh, to someone like me who was not raised who was raised I, I guess on the cusp uh, of the MTV post MTV. Uh, editing world. Okay, but, so you're saying like the chaotic uh, the chaotic action scenes of Transformers, for example. Um, are are well done within that particular vocabulary, but you do not understand that vocabulary. Uh, yeah, I guess, well, I guess so. And I would say that that vocabulary, I would say that that language is is by and large gibberish. But I mean, if you're deciding to speak gibberish, it is excellent gibberish. You know, as as um, <laughs> uh, as gibberish goes. Uh, you know, but yeah, hey, but I, Pete, I don't know. The but, way they, um, okay, go ahead. Uh, but Pete, like, there's there's a difference between that and the there's a difference between that and the storytelling. You, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess the the Inception storytelling. Uh, I don't know. Inception really kind of laid out a. It sort of it sort of told you what it was going to do, did it, and then told you what it did. You know, so from the point yeah. of view of like middle school essay writing, it uh, it really it really hit the ball out of the park. <laughs> that's a five paragraph <laughs> movie right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a that's a term that we should coin on overthinking it. Five paragraph movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I will I will say to. To bring it back to Inception, to expand a little on Pete's comments, one thing that would have been nice, I mean, really, with a, with any action movie, and especially a movie this dense, it's kind of a tall order, but would be a little more, a little more, a little more characterization study. Like it, it seems like they're charting an interesting arc of growth for Ellen Page's character Ariadne at various points, but it never really goes anywhere. It seems like they're building the relationship between Arthur. And uh, Eames, Arthur being Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and Eames being the British uh, uh, forger, played by Tom Hardy, uh, into some sort of interesting feud that might turn friendly by the end, but we never really go anywhere with that. So it would have been nice if something had been done with those, but 
I don't know if I'm asking more of this movie than I would be of, say, Too Fast, Too Furious. You're asking, well, you're asking a hero's journey movie to be an ensemble movie, right? It, is this a hero's journey movie? I mean, is when does not? he meet the old wizard? You know, I mean, I isn't Michael Caine the old when wizard? Does that stuff happen? What is Michael Caine really? I don't know if Michael Caine is the old wizard. The Michael Caine doesn't really teach him anything. Yeah, I, I really he's, he's he's the teacher. Like Leonardo DiCaprio is the teacher for a lot of the movie. So he doesn't quite fit into it. No, yeah, no, it's not. It's a heist. It's a heist movie. You know what I mean? mean, It does have one of the things that I thought was neat about it is that it is so many different kinds of movies at at once. Like to say it's just a heist movie is missing a bunch. Like one of the things we've already covered, actually, um, part of part of Parrish's opening comment was that what this does is it takes its crazy speculative fiction conceit and then treats it really, really seriously. And that's one of the things that science fiction movies are meant to do. It's been so long since we've had a science fiction movie that does that, um, that it's like we kind of forget. We think that they're action movies with lasers rather than, uh, than rifles. But if you look at things like Primer and earlier, you know, things like, uh, yeah. things like Metropolis, right? Um, that's, that's kind of like the classic task of the science fiction movie. And this does that. You know? I Inception think- reminded me a lot of Primer. This movie yeah. is, is very, owes of a fair amount to Primer in terms of the way that it's structured and how it communicates its message and, and stuff like that. Except, um, that I mean, yeah. except that it's also tremendously polished, whereas uh, Primer was very, very good, but charmingly amateurish in many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, Primer cost about as much as the valet parking for Inception. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Let me see True. if I'm understanding this, what you're, what you're, what you're driving out here, Stokes. So a movie like Star Trek doesn't really take its uh, pseudoscience seriously. Like, for example, the red matter, which caused the time thing, which caused other things. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> really, is not really worked out particularly well. Well, right. Whereas, where, yeah. where is it? Where is it? It has its rules. It takes it very seriously and just plays it out all the way, all the way, all the way out. Whereas in Star Trek, uh, Eric Bana says, prepare the red matter. Uh, it takes Christopher Nolan to prepare the gray matter. And your head in shame. I do think um, that we can see a bit of a hero's journey structure in this, and that there is like there's a descent into the abyss and then a coming back, right? Um, Right. There is when they're down there, there are people there that are effectively immortal, right? But you can't take that back with you to the real world. So I mean. Whether it hits all of the beats, maybe it doesn't, but like you could see that there if you were so inclined, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it definitely, like, because there's a lot of movie talent, movie traditional screenwriting structure, movie structure that, that borrows very heavily from the Joseph Campbell stuff, and this kind of borrows from that, right? Because it's like, it uses a lot of the beats that you see in a lot of movies. And I mean, it's, again, it's, it's a very good movie, and I'm not saying it's unoriginal or anything like that, but, um, it definitely feels like it has a common ancestor with something like Star Wars, I guess. You know what I mean? It's like a generation or two separated from it. Um, but, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a good movie. I, it's a very good movie. I think that the, There's the a lot to think about it, in the movie, though. What? The, the goodness of it has much less to do with originality and much more to do with kind of a, a certain skillful carrying out of the, yeah, of the story yeah. that like we've seen before, you know? Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, lots, lots to think about. What I thought, this is like my, my favorite thing about it, and not just was like, oh my god, that's so awesome, but it was very interesting to think about while it was going on, is how it takes the, the basic cinematic vocabulary of cross-cutting 
between two sequences which are going on at the same time in different locations and utterly turns it on its head, right? So, like, I mean, this is... This is the, the, the old D.W. Griffith trick where you have, um, you know, the people trapped in the cabin and then it cuts to because D.W. Griffith, although a great filmmaker, was not necessarily the greatest person, the heroic Ku Klux Klan charging to the rescue. You cut back and forth between these things. Um, we're like we're very, very used to this to suddenly see this happening between the same people at the same time in two different locations. That was really, really neat. You know, I thought. Yeah. And, and can we talk about how. You know, I to to talk about the use of, of good cinematic technique, particularly the building of tension, how essentially the last half hour of the movie, the tension is continually at the full set of the throttle and lets up maybe at incremental points, but but not bare but barely. Like from as from from my mark, as soon as the van goes off the bridge and starts falling in slow mo, like everything from that point on is full throttle edge of the seat tension. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, it is cool. And, uh, like, almost the second half of the movie takes place while some, while a bunch of people are falling off of a bridge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of intense. And I yeah. think that it's. I mean, that kind of thing has been done before in movies, but typically not so elegantly structured. Typically, you have to have. Typically, a it was like a fifteen-second silent movie that was made in the Edison Studios about a guy jumping off of a bridge. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean the <laughs> the idea of like the last half hour is just full throttle all the way. Typically, you need the yeah. moment where the the bad boys two moment where they're like, okay, now let's go do it again, but in a different scene. Yeah. Right. You mean or let's yeah, go invade yeah, yeah. Cuba? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, they they almost had that when they're like, okay, now we've got to go down to Limbo, but they still managed to carry it off well enough, I think, um, for for a variety of reasons, mostly because like, I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, if you think of episode one, like that was the big achievement that George Lucas thought he was doing with the end of that movie, right? It's like he has three different like big major action sequences that are all happening at the same time like, building up to a simultaneous climax, except that they're all pretty stupid. Uh, but, like, the duel of... This is basically the duel of the fates, except all the plots are interesting. They're all, like, totally different from each other, and they all have the same people in them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like a, a similar land, sea, and air chase, uh, so to speak. Yeah. By the way, can you imagine, like, you know, years from now when this movie is being broadcast regularly on late-night TV... Um, somehow never having heard of it before and channel surfing into the last like half hour of this movie, I think that you might be convinced that you had had a stroke because <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps uh, Mark, you had, or, or was it Mark or, or Stokes? You had, you had something about the, the song in the movie. Ah, je ne regrette rien. Um, yeah, this was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, so here's the first question before we dive deep into the meaning of it is what percentage of the audience do you think a recognize a song or b knew enough French to understand what the what the lyric the key lyric what it means and how that ties into the rest of it right for those of you who don't speak French or or, or haven't pick up, picked up on this of course the song the meaning of it is I regret nothing. Which is ironic, of course, because Leo's character is so full of regret, yada, yada, yada. So that's my first question. Is like, who, like, what percentage of the audience do you think got that? I mean, the French ones. Hmm. I, I'd say a good percentage, but I saw it in, in snooty and well-educated Somerville, Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm probably not a good sample size. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, I think, of Edith Piaf songs, that's the one that, that and uh, Mavian Rose is the one that everyone knows, right? 
Well, I mean, you know, we say to everybody, everyone who knows Edith Piaf. Right? Remember, this is yeah. this is a summer tent pole. This is marketed to uh, to as wide of an audience as possible, right? They're going for all four quadrants here, as we like to say. I guess. Well, that's that's. I, I mean, that's I that's something that we're not. Says, I don't, well, go ahead. The four quadrants doesn't quite apply to something about sort of the intelligence level of the audience, which is something I want to get into later if we have the time. Um, sort of like what assumptions of the audience's intelligence do you make? You know. Um, for something like this, you know, I guess uh, clearly Christopher, Christopher Nolan is assuming that most enough people are going to pick up on this cue and connect it with larger theme in the movie. That's going to make this an effective part of it. Well, Edith Piaf, who was, who was depicted in the 2007 film La Mavion Rose by Marion Cotillard, who played Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, wife, Mal, in this movie. Yeah, it, which is crazy. Like, isn't that great that, like, the song that's playing is associated with the actress who is playing the person who is in the shadows all the time over the course of this movie. Crazy. I mean, I had one theory about this movie, that this movie actually takes place between the French actress lady and Leonardo DiCaprio uh, as they're trying to work out their own personal issues. Uh, and they create, <laughs> create these characters and go, and go through. I was, like, coming up with different theories for the movie uh, last night. And that, that one of the ideas is that this is actually just them, like, trying to figure some stuff out. Because, like, how crazy is that bit of metacasting? Like, that's just awesome. Right. I mean, they might as well have been playing the Growing Pains theme as well. You know, so, it's like, or like Titanic. What if they were playing the Titanic song? Wouldn't that be crazy? That might that be amazing. Like, oh, that would be hilarious, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, Jordan, I'm I mean, like- I don't know. I mean, I'll just, I'll just say quickly, like, what my, what my thought process was on the movie, and I know you guys had a plan before I came in late as to what to talk about, but, uh, but I, I thought, okay, like, try to figure the movie out, right? But the wrong way to try to figure it out is to try to figure out what actually happens, quote-unquote, because there's a lot of, like, meta that's going on, and, and it's deliberately made ambiguous as to what's going on. So uh, what I thought I would try to get on an exercise of is find out, like, the pl- possible things that might be happening, right? And, and, like, what are the sort of different plot lines that might be happening in this movie that exist in ambiguity with each other, that exist, like, sort of simultaneously in the considerations of the audience? And, like, how is he making them all coexist and make them all sort of possible and or, like, contributory to what's going on? And, right? and, one, and is so that one, of them, is, one is that this is a group therapy session between Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, and Marion Cotillard, the actress, who have, like, yeah, yeah. problems <laughs> That's an interesting. Although, of course, it, yeah, <laughs> it really ties in more to the idea of like that particular one is. This is a movie that is not real in itself, and this yeah. is described. And the movie itself is describing <laughs> the creative process that Christopher Nolan is going through in order to put the movie together, right? And I like that's sort of one that. of the plot lines of the movie. You know, you know the, the so. degree to which, like, if you look at the van falling into the river as being an account of the human life, where like you're you're catapulted into the air and you fall and you hit the ground and die. But as you go further down, you can reach for immortality by creating art, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Like one of oh, the ways man. of reading it. That's good stuff, Jordan. Man, whoa! Thank you, thank you. Uh, I've I've been sitting on that one for a while, actually. <laughs> can we get back to the Edith Piaf and the La Vie en Rose? Yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I wanted to get, especially Jordan. I wanted to get your take. You being the film music scholar. Uh, on, yeah. on the particular use of this song and what it's supposed to evoke and all those types of things. It's interesting because I think that, um, je ne regrette rien, like, forget whether the audience is meant to understand that. Christopher Nolan clearly does understand it, right? So, like, you can, you can try to think about what he meant by putting it there. And I think, yeah, the irony that um, clearly Leo regrets an awful lot, right? 
Um, and presumably he's the one who would have picked the song since he's in charge. Also, that whole style of uh, of like the, the French, you know, singer tradition like that um, is so kind of overdeterminedly nostalgic. Like any single Edith Piaf song, well, that's not true. There are some that, that are clearly about other things, but most of them you could play and they have the same kind of emotional effect. Um, so, I mean, well... I guess I'm, I'm contradicting myself because, of course, it's already ironic when you listen to Je ne regrette rien because clearly the singer does regret an awful lot, you know? Right. Um, that's there. And I do think that the, the fact that it is associated with the Marion Cotillard character, for those who remember that she played that part, um, is, is pretty important. It changes the way that you hear the song because her character is such a kind of ghoul in the shadows that the song becomes a kind of sonic signifier of horror as well as kind of a, a warning that the action scenes have to all end at the next moment. Mm-hmm. Well, no, hey, Mark, the, you remember when last... you were in that movie with that Edith Piaf song in it that I made, that we made together? That was pretty fun. That was pretty great, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we, people we can email ta- us about that separately and we'll talk about it. <laughs> we were talking earlier, I forget whether it was pre-podcast or not, about the about the movie score and about the, the very heavy, you know, pronounced overtones. Like, I think the trailer was the first thing to feature it, where the trailer ends with literally just this this clanging, you know, deafening bass score, like, clong, clong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Remember that? Yeah. And there, there are several points in the movie where it shows up. I didn't get that until... Watching the movie, realizing that uh, Je ne regrette rien was the trigger to come out of it, and that realizing as you got deeper in, time slowed down, meaning that people several layers deep in the dream would hear the music slower. So you know mm-hmm. how you know how Je ne regrette rien begins with this sort of like bombastic trumpet march, like bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. If you slowed that down twenty times, do you think it might sound like clong, clong? That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. I, I don't. I'm I'm fairly convinced that they didn't actually use the process slowed down sound, but like, is it meant to suggest that? Yeah, probably. But it's used. I think it's, it's used it as a sound effect in the movie. Like, I think in in uh, like level three, the ice boss. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the ice level. <laughs> yeah, that's the golden eye level, right? That's like the Severnia base or whatever. <laughs> or like, is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, in that level, it comes through as a clang, doesn't it? And uh, Leo and Ellen are like, "Is that music?" Right. They thought it was the wind at first, or something like that. Well, yeah, but because it's 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 the music starting on I think the uppermost level. It's the first <laughs> it's the first kick, I think. So yeah, yeah. so yeah, I think that is. I, I, I'm I'm sure that's that's not how it was composed, but I'm sure I'm pretty sure that's what it's meant to evoke. Yeah. But that's you know, Mavion Rose slowed down twenty or how many times. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's also kind of um, as you get further deep down, the the music becomes less and less like music um, to the point where down in limbo, which is where you get that cue most prominently, it's right. just like individual notes played really, really loud. You know, it's yeah. um, it's kind of like the beginning of 2001 where you get that in reverse, where rather than coming from just a drone into actual music, you go from actual music down into like the component parts of music. It's a neat trick. Right. Which, yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, the oil theme in There Will Be Blood. Or every lost sound cue, right? Doesn't it have that... <laughs> 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 Hans Zimmer ain't got nothing on us. We'll just sit here all day and go, wow, wow. It was a movie that way. Chris Nolan, give us a call. You don't need the expense of Hans Zimmer anymore. 
it would have been interesting. Like there was a lot of time with the the film music where it would be cutting back and forth between the different levels of reality, and to maintain the montage, they used the same music bridging across between them. It would be really interesting to see an alternative score where each level of the dream had its own musical identity, which appeared every time you moved back and forth between them. Kind of if like uh, how way. each world of Super Mario Brothers ha- has its own. Uh, theme music, and when you warp, you know, from one to the other, hmm. the new music comes on. So well, it should be a, like, choo, choo, choo sound whenever you <laughs> yeah. cut from one reality to the other. <laughs> no, I think that would give away and, uh, too and much. Rather than, rather than playing Non Je Ne Rien, when it's time for the, uh, for the kick, you go, do, 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 and everything goes, like, twice as fast, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I thought about while I was in the theater watching this movie is I have never seen a movie that is more influenced by the aesthetics of video games that would be more impossible to turn into a video game, you know, because like it's got Mm -hmm. levels, right? And yet I'm sure they're going to try. Oh, and I'm sure they're going to try, but like it, it would be very difficult not to make it completely pointless. I mean, you could make a good, uh, third person shooter, that uh, that takes place in the Inception world, but it wouldn't have anything to do with Inception, right? Right, yeah. I mean, we could, you know, for irony effect, make a 8-bit platform jumper Mario-style uh, Inception game, and that would be funny. That would be pretty great, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not even like an 8-bit platform jumper, like, a, um, like an, an Atari, uh, like, you know, one of those things, like a Pac-Man game, basically, where you have to run away from all the projections who are trying to swarm on. Like, a, like an Atari 2600 game that's just inexplicable and you don't know what any of the buttons do and it's just a bunch of squares <laughs> and it's called Inception. Guys, guys not, even, not even an Atari 4600 game, an interactive fiction text game where it's like, you are in a room, enter yeah. kitchen. You see your dead wife. Talk to dead wife. She's not actually dead. What do you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you, you see a top. Spin top. <laughs> hey, speaking of the dead wife in the movie, I wanted to check with... Speak of my dead wife, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you were, eaten, you were uh, eaten by a Gru. <laughs> <laughs> so we're often taking a task for not having women on the podcast, and this is one of the instances, uh, well, every instance, but this one in particular, where uh, we really could use someone of the opposite gender on this. I was curious what you guys thought about the portrayal of women or I guess a, a, that particular woman uh, in this movie. Now, she's really you know, meant to be something of a foil to Leo's character, right? Is she, she meant to be sort of a, um, I don't know what the Freudian, Freudian interpretation of this is, kind of like an evil mother type of thing, or, or what's going on with her? Well, here's the thing, that whenever we meet her, she's a projection of Leo's unconscious, or else she's a, a, a memory that, you know, that he has... Um, sort of uh, uh, codified, right, in that in that dream with the elevator. So she's not... We never really see her uh, as her, except in the flashbacks to when she killed herself. And even that is ostensibly Leo's memory. But I think right. that doesn't really answer Mark's question, because that's saying, like, what the how the plot justifies her doesn't really say how she functions in the movie as sort of a representation of of, of women. You know, like you could you could take the take some movie and be like, well, you know, because it's a actually she's a she's an elf, you know, so she doesn't act like you're like normal women. And it makes sense that she's a lesbian for everyone she meets. Right. Like because she's an elf. It's totally different. Yeah. Well, yeah. Elf lesbians. I mean, come on. (laughs) 
Right. Um, I so, mean, you can read the movie as if uh, Mal is still alive, right, and is still sort of guiding events in some way, like mm-hmm. through her, like through the projections and through the character of Ariadne potentially. I mean, here's something that I thought of, like. Those two female characters like look similar enough that I feel like they draw a, a parallel to each other. And I think this works if we're talking about how women are portrayed as well, because I feel like those characters are meant to be associated with each other, right? As sort of two sides of a similar sort of relationship, um, like Leo and his woman, right? Uh, and it's definitely like his woman. It's definitely like she is defined in opposition to the man, uh, whether it's Ariadne or or Mal, and and. She has a lot of the characteristics of that kind of definition, like she's hysterical and or like she's subservient or like she's psychotic or like any of these other sort of characteristics of the Freudian woman um, that go through the whole piece. But um, I don't think you necessarily have to see it as bad, right? I think that like it could all be a trick is part of what part of the sort of subtext of a lot of this stuff, which I think is a traditional way of venting the tension out of sexist criticism to things. Is you're like, well, it might be ironic or like, well, it might not be really the way that it goes. Like, there could be another way to explain this, right? And that's kind of a way of, of letting ourselves off the hook. I don't know if we want to do that or not, but um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I just sort of I mean, brain vomited there a little bit because it's kind I, of I the kind of movie that, that provokes brain vomits. Yeah, definitely so. the idea that, that, um, that Ariadne and Mal are kind of, you know, he's got like the good woman and the bad woman that he oscillates between, and they're both sort of there as his foils is, is definitely there. It works as storytelling, which is why we see that so often, but it is kind of unfortunate, you know? Um, I also think that the the name Ariadne, I really wish they had left that on the cutting room floor, right? Like, the, the, this movie is deserves better than Greek mythology-themed well, names. Uh, unless Ariadne is a projection, or unless we're supposed to believe, and it's not a projection, a forgery, unless we're to believe that Ariadne is not, in fact, who she seems to be. That she is like a, a, a personage that was created to fill this role to try to plant an inception in Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Like, um, that, that she's not actually like, because there's two, a bunch of the characters are kind of big stereotypes and like kind of larger than life or like not um, really naturalistic, that they may very well be themselves forgeries. Because we know that the British guy can pretend to be Tom Berenger. And I mean, Tom Berenger is inimitable. So, you know, that's kind of a tough thing to do. <laughs> Anybody who tried to make Major League Three knows that you can't replace Tom Berenger. <laughs> so, as, as IMDb has known, this is Tom Berenger's first major American release since Training Day. So he has, uh, he's, he's been saving this one up. Yeah, I saw his movie with Buster Rhymes, and it was not good. <laughs> so. <laughs> so maybe this is yeah, a good, yeah, but, good time to take us on the sort of the, on the analysis of the whole was it a dream or not thing. Because what well, you're getting at, Pete, it seems like is that um, the fact that the character's name was Ariadne or Pete and Stokes, the fact that the character's name was Ariadne, there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, sort of hyper-realistic things which suggest that the characters weren't actually real um, I would add to that as well the kind of ridiculousness subplot of the ridiculously powerful corporation that Ken Watanabe's character controls, and that he just, you know, he just bought the airline out, and he can pick up a phone call and make uh, Leo's visa problem disappear, uh, or, or you know, uh, legal problems disappear on the other end of it. All of this, Mark. Suggests, that's not how. That's not how Asians are. I hate to break it to you, Matt. We don't all control insanely powerful corporations and, uh, and, and can circumvent the U.S. legal system just in the phone call. I really wish we could. Um, believe me, if, if, if I could do that, uh, we'd be in a different place right now. But Well, the Koreans can't do it because the other Asians have been beating them up for so long. 
But, uh, oh, you know, <laughs> but they're getting there. Volume. They're getting there. Well, <laughs> so, okay, so, so yeah, one, yeah. one interesting item on the is it all a, was it all a dream uh, theory is, you know, when Ariadne is first being introduced to the notion of dream projection, Leo DiCaprio's character Cobb questions her by saying, do you remember how we got here? And she stops and says, oh, yeah, well, we, and then she realizes she doesn't, and that's how, that's what clues her in that it's a dream. But we, as the audience, don't remember how she got there either, because it just starts with them talking in a cafe, which is perfectly acceptable within the language of film. We don't need to see every minute of someone's day. We can watch, see them in a place, and like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll mentally connect the dots in our head. Like, they must have left this university, they must have left the University of Paris, or wherever that's supposed to be, and gone to some cafe in Paris, and now here they are talking. So... I mean, that's a very interesting bit that subverts the language of film in service of the theme. Because Mm -hmm. now every transition, we're starting to wonder, well, okay, is this just the movie transitioning? Or is this their way of telling us, hang on, it's a dream now because you didn't see what happened next? Or what? Wow! Yeah, sure, sure. Something that uh, that Christopher Nolan has a history of doing, right? With Memento being the, the obvious touchstone there. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wait, so... so another, Another clue... Sorry, go ahead. So... Going back to the whole, you know, do, they don't quite know exactly how they got their piece of it. Can't you apply that to, like, the surface-level Leo plot at the beginning? Like, that we're not really quite sure how he gets there, wherever there, be, there is, right? You, you mean, yeah, I mean, you can also read it. To, yeah. I, mean, I was thinking about this, because it either begins in Nemedia's race or it doesn't, right? It either begins in Nemedia's race and then you jump back, right? Or it is actually happening in linear time, potentially, and then this is all, like, layers and back-and-forth levels of consciousness that are happening to Leo during the course of that entire period. Uh, I mean, that's not likely, but, like, I think it's one reading of it that sort of needs to stand in opposition to the other readings. Sure. Right? That, like, that, he's, that this whole thing is pure subconscious, right? Um, and, that the whole, and, the whole adventure. Like, it all takes place in limbo, right? Like, starting from the very first thing and going linearly from there, which, again, is something that the language of film allows for a framing flashback, right? We don't generally question that. We don't worry about that. But the sci-fi conceit means you have to question whether this is the language of film or whether this is something else. And I think that that, more than anything else, is why this movie reminds some of us of Primer, right? Because that's sort of... The, the big thing that Primer manages to pull off. Or some, uh, I mean... The other thing, reason that it's like Primer is that um, the, it uses a modular technology and then it scales it by multiplying it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. they, in Primer, they have a time machine and then they can use multiple time machines to do more creative things. Whereas in, in Inception, they have like one dream machine and then they use multiple dream machines to do like more complicated things. So that's the other similarity, uh, is that you use the, you, you take it in individual steps, which makes the narrative easier to follow. So let's, rather than let's, having one crazy machine that does it all. Let's talk about that for like a bit. In the fly. So, yeah. so the, 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 the team uses the dream machine to, you know, pr- to put, uh, to put the, their target, uh, Robert Fisher, who's played by Cillian Murphy, into a dream state. And then when they want to take him deeper, within a dream, they, use a, they dream up, apparently, a dream machine to take him into a further dream state. So... In order to create the the mental state that will take him deeper, they need to they need to dream up a representation of the physical object that they first used to do it back in what we are meant to suppose is the real reality. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's really, I mean, that was definitely one of the big either holes for me or like, not really a hole, but it's a little bit sloppy, but I guess it's, it's useful for the audience to follow it. But like, for example, in the Matrix, when they want to get out of the Matrix, they just pick up a phone, right? Because we understand that in the Matrix, we're looking at representations of things, and representation doesn't have to be what it seems. So something that fulfills a function doesn't have to look like the function that it fulfills, because it's a representation, it's not a, a thing in itself. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, and so there's no reason why they can't just use pieces of yarn as dream machines in, in, the, in the dreams that they have. Because the dreamer would believe it. Uh, I mean, again, you have to deal with the whole conceit of, well, the subconscious would react to it or not. But, like, there isn't, we can't, we, if they put out a, a ball of yarn and they were like, let's tie this to everybody, now we're going one deeper, we would accept that as a representation. But instead they use the machines, which both reinforces the idea that the original dream machine isn't necessarily real, right? Because it it's the same as all the others. And right. also, like, you know, it's a, it creates a little bit of a, of a discontinuity because there's no, there's no chemistry in dreams, right? Like, like, and also the chemist has sort of alchemical, uh, he's like, he's like a, an apothecary. He has these like bottles and like glass bottles, looks like a bar. So he is li- he really he a, a very chemist? Exo- yeah, he lives in a very exotic locale, like the sort of weird, yeah. musty attic, et cetera. Like you can't keep chemicals at that kind of like ambient temperature and expect them to like not denature. You know what I mean? Like, there's probably a lot of proteins in a lot of that stuff. And, like, you could not have, like, a complex <laughs> neurological chemistry lab that happens on the ground floor of a bar in Latin America. Like, it just wouldn't work. Or they're in Africa, even. In Africa. Right? Like, I it, like it, it would be too hot. I like it how that, well, that piece alone could be the conclusive evidence that the whole thing is a joke. Yeah. Let's get Schechner on this. A resident. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will say the, the chemist acts a lot more like Miracle Max than he does, like, an actual chemist, right? Who's Miracle Max? Is that like Mighty Max, Bride? where he's like a little kid? What? Oh, from, from the Princess, Princess Bride. Bride, right? Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> As if, except, except that he gets to be in a van chase, which Billy Crystal never gets to do in that movie. That's true. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Princess Bride so, could be improved by the addition of a couple van chases. <laughs> I was yeah. really upset that they cast the Billy Crystal role with an Indian guy. I thought that was racist. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> So the, the Never mind. Chemist, I don't, I'm sorry. Don't open that can of worms. I know it's been dicey lately, so the, I'll the be chem, careful. The chemist, who, the chemist who not only gets to drive a van, but is also, like apparently everyone else in the movie, including the forger, the architect, and everyone, a supremely good uh, rifle and pistol shot. Like, did you notice that? Like, the I, I thought, I wondered at first if it was just one of the conceits of the dream world, like, oh, since we're subconsciously projecting ourselves, I can imagine myself to be a better shot than I actually am. But... I don't know that the reality of the movie supports that. And there are several times where, like, in the, the, final, the final level, uh, level three of the ice stage, uh, where, the, where Eames, the, the British forger character, you know, while skiing, pulls off several remarkably tricky shots. He skis and, backwards and, and starts mowing people down at one point, right? right? So, so, I mean, is that something he can do in the real world? Like, does he spend his off hours skiing and shooting? Like, is he is he a biathlon? I think uh, that if method? you're, a, you know, I think that if you do uh, dream extraction, you you have to expect the unexpected, you know? So you spend your off hours doing, you know, decathlon training or something. <laughs> or, that's, or no, what's the one? Biathlon, where you ski and shoot? Yeah, biathlon is the ski shoot, I just said. And, you know, I mean, well, I, I think that trying to say is this a plot hole or not, is a, a bad way to approach this movie. Remember that these people have a theoretically infinite amount of off time, right? Like, if Eames wants True, to learn yeah. how to ski and shoot, he can go three levels deep in the dream and spend a solid year training 
in one night. <laughs> that is a Dragon Ball Z solution to an Inception problem, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, man, I can go in the dream state and do push-ups for 40 years. I'm going to be so strong. Wait, no, no, it's be you, awesome. can't, it's a, you can't do push-ups. It's a question, it's a question of changing your mind, because I think you can only change your mind in the, uh, okay. uh, right in the dream space, right? So I can play Trivial Pursuit for 40 years, and then I come out and I'm really awesome at it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you've <laughs> learned all the start going, and the other team never even gets a chance to roll, and it's really, really obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. Except you've learned. That you've, would be amazing. You've made up all the trivial. Uh, uh, you've made up all the trivial pursuit questions out of your own subconscious. So the, uh, you know, the trivial <laughs> pursuit questions is like, you know, what is Pete's relationship with his parents? You know, what what does Pete dream about? You'll be great at that yeah. trivial pursuit. <laughs> Hey, can I uh, can I float a theory about the ending? Well, so yeah, most sure. most of what people have been saying, you know, on on the distinguished internet, is that it's a question of either it was the real world and he's back with his kids, or it's a fake world and he's trapped in a dream world forever. Right? Um, I have a. It's not like really a different interpretation, but it's like another thing to think about, which is that. The crucial thing that happens there is that he doesn't wait for the top to fall over before he rushes to his children, which right. means that he's no longer concerned about whether this is the real world or not. Right. And assuming that this is the real world, that's actually really, really important because he's been down in limbo. The last thing we saw him do in limbo is establish that this world is not real. And if I kill myself, I can get out of it. Right. We know from the movie that if you get that idea down on that level, it can infect you so that you think the real world is fake and you kill yourself. So the fact that, like, I wonder what's happening to, to Ken Watanabe, right, after, after yeah. that exchange. Like, is he fine or is he, you know, a couple of months away from suicide? And the fact that Leo runs past the top and doesn't care anymore means that, uh, that his character gets the happy, happy ending. Yeah, it would also be consistent. I mean, when you wake up from a dream, yeah, there's that moment where it kind of lingers with you, but eventually you shake it off and you're okay, right? And it's not like, man, I, and I've only had a couple of dreams in my life, I guess, and mostly when I was very, very young, where it was ambiguous after the dream, like whether the dream had been real or not. But in my adult life, they do fade, and, and you sort of move on, right? There's like a moment where you sort of think about it, and then you sort of you go back to being alive in, in, in your... It's funny, I had a really vivid dream the night before I saw Inception, where my teeth fell out, and my jaw fell out, and I had a cow jaw, and it had all this manufacturing stuff stamped on it, and it was, like, very vivid. And I kept sort of holding on to the reality of that while I was watching the movie, um, like, remembering how real it felt while I was going through it. But afterwards, I didn't sort of stop and think, like, are my teeth there? You know, like, when I woke up, I knew that they were there. Well, Fenzel, that's, that, that just, that's just a sign of a very amateurish extraction team that was hired to plant the notion that you have a cow jaw in your head. And clearly they failed. Yeah, yeah they did. They were, they were from the beef lobby, and they were trying to get me to like steak and, and buy a particular brand of Angus beef. But they, probably, they unfortunately, they put in the wrong part of the cow, and it yeah. turned into a horrible nightmare. So um, one but yeah, more- I like that interpretation, Jordan. That's interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah, I, I like that, too. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I think the central question of the movie, I mean, it's not the central, but one of the big, like, sort of surface level, it's not central, it's a surface level question of the movie is, like, is 
an inception being performed on Leonardo DiCaprio? Like, is an idea being planted in his head, and is that the whole point of this operation? Versus, like, does he reach this personal catharsis sort of incidentally to the main action of the movie, which is to get Fisher out of there or whatever, to get Fisher to break up his company? Um, like, like, is the is is there is he uh, is he being conned versus like is he actually just like being distracted? Um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know. Uh, well, I wanted to, I was curious about what you guys thought about that. I mean, I think of it as being sort of in between the two, but um, I mean, it's called Inception, and he's the main character, so it seems weird that the Inception would have would not be his. Um, you know what I mean? So who would be like making sort of the Inception on him, and why? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's, that's the thing. The if, the, if the whole movie is a, is a, if the whole movie is a dream, then, then we never really see outside of it. You know, there, there isn't, I mean, there is some, I guess you could marshal some evidence to say that, that it's a dream and that the, even in the last thing when, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Michael Caine go to play with the kids, that too is a dream. Uh, the fact that the kids haven't aged at all is, you know, right, is the one that I, uh, the fact uh, that they're in the same the same posture, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Like it, it's, it's arguably yeah. one shot of the children that they go back and edit in several times, right? right. And then um, all that, yeah, all that stuff. But then we never really see outside outside the dream, right? We're not, yeah. you know, what we have. Uh, that is to say, the the film text is uh, entirely coextensive with the dream text. And yeah. it's it's also a it's also a note. I I would say. I would almost say it's a cautionary tale, but I don't, I don't think it's what they had in mind. But it could be viewed as such from a pessimistic viewpoint about the notion of, of questioning the metaphysical order too much. Because, I mean, the, the dream that takes up the latter half of the story is, is this induced dream in Fisher's head. And we see him waking up on the flight afterward and sort of wandering in a bit of a daze through the airport in, in Los Angeles. But he... So it's clear that his mind has been changed by the inception, but he knows he's had a dream. So it, it, it's, cl- it's clear it had a profound emotional effect, but at no point does he wake up and say, hmm, I wonder if this is the real world or not. Right. It's only the people who, who are familiar with the multiple levels of consciousness that start plaguing themselves with this doubt. They're the ones who have to carry totems around. So it, it, I, I guess it's... I mean, it, it's not quite a, you know, it's not quite the old science fiction standard of don't reach too high or you're going to destroy your own world because it's a more optimistic film than that. But it, it does play on the boundaries of that genre convention. The yeah. idea that, anyone, that knowledge is harmful, you know, yes. inherently. Did anybody else think it was weird that Leonardo DiCaprio never had his own totem? That he only had his wife's totem? Like, presumably he had his own totem at some point. It would have been pretty important to him, right? Um, I think he took his wife. Are wives. we supposed to believe that there were? What? Right. I think he took. I think in the real world he took his wife's after she died. Yeah, yes, but, but, but presumably it, it, it isn't weird. Yeah. Yeah, like like people saying, like presumably he used to have a different one, right? So the yeah. fact that he has his wife's that is a little bit weird. It, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know quite what to make of it, but it is a little bit odd. I mean, the the yeah yeah a narrative, you know what I mean, is about a hero changing his mind about something. You, you know what I mean. 
so the fact that Leo Leo sort of gets a new I mean a narrative is about the birth of a new idea at some abstract level so the fact that Leo gets a new idea at the end of the movie I mean maybe that's a function of the this is, I mean this is one of the things that it that it does I mean this is one of the reasons I think it's a good movie is that it invites us to engage with it right it calls into it, it calls into question just to circle back a little bit to what something we were talking about before uh, it calls into uh, question the relationship between shot and shot you know when two shots are edited together so it makes us think about montage you know it makes us think about the kind of uh it makes us think about sort of the the metaphysical levels and it's it's an invitation to meditate rather than an invitation to kind of uh i don't know be um uh be anesthetized which is uh, you know which is a function of a lot of i mean you know uh, the in the in the sort of opium den like basement that you know that we saw like they could have been watching television you know you know what i mean yeah Hey, there's a real, there's a short film that um, if you liked Inception, I would really recommend uh, recommend to you guys because it uses a lot of the same sort of um, framework. It's called Dancing on the Ceiling. It's by Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's a similar sort of bending of reality because he's having a party in his house, right? And then it's like they're on the ceiling dancing. And he's like on the floor, and he can walk around, and gravity changes. It's pretty awesome. He has Jerry Curl. It's awesome. Uh, so I, I just had to had to sorbet my brain a little bit. It's it's interesting yeah. you say that because Lionel Richie, you know, former member of the Commodores, uh, after he left the Commodores, did a song in the '80s called "Night Shift," which is about you know the the entertainers we've loved in the past waiting for us in heaven, putting on this incredible show. And the idea that there will be some sweet sounds coming down on that night shift. <laughs> Hello, is it me you're looking for? Because I'm in the Freudian hellscape. Claw. Claw. <laughs> 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 Um, all right. Well, what do you think? Do you think we have plumbed the depths of Inception, or do you think that we've gotten it entirely wrong? If you have uh, anything you want to contribute, you know what to do. Give us a call at 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Or email podcast at overthinkingit.com. We will be back next week, probably not with a movie. I don't know what's coming out next week. We uh, we didn't overthink Despicable Me, you know. We still have to do that. I love that movie. I will probably write something about it this week. It might not be for tomorrow. It might be Tuesday. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Or you know, you know what else? Uh, we um, there were a couple of good trailers. There were a couple of trailers I was pretty excited about. One is for the the show, Social Network, uh, where they edited out every anything that really kind of smacked of Aaron Sorkin at all, but is an Aaron Sorkin script. So you know. Where people will talk at an extremely rapid pace, and uh, uh, and it will have a banter-like impression. What? A banter-like impression? You mean the impression of banter? Yes, the impression of banter. What else do you think I mean by a banter-like Matt, impression? Matt, there's a podcast going on, and we need you in there in five minutes. Go. <laughs> right, speaking, of, speaking of trailers before Inception, the one that re- the, my favorite moment from that was they did a uh, a preview for some you know psychological mind-bending horror movie called Devil, I think, right? And yeah. uh, as the titles were flashing towards the end, and the, the one title card comes up and it says, like, an M. Night Shyamalan production, and the crowd laughed. Like, it was a pack <laughs> theater. 
everybody laughed together. It's like, oh man, M Night Shyamalan has become a punchline. Yeah. Guy totally lost his mojo. Uh, we haven't lost our mojo, though. Uh, you know how I know? We uh, celebrated on Friday 1,000 posts on our website. So you can go read all 1,000 while you're waiting for the next episode. Uh, what episode What uh, episode is that? No. What website is that, you ask? Why? It's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. In no, rien de rien. No, je ne regrette rien. Ni le bien. Recall uh, uh, Inception matchup where the final scene, where uh, well, not the final scene, one of the ending scenes when uh, Leo is fighting with his wife, uh, Leo stabs her and he says, Consider this a divorce. <laughs> the mashup that I want to do is that scene where you see Leo like switching the, um, the, the top out of the safe. One of the people I saw the movie with had this idea to like do a mashup of that where it's like Folgers coffee and regular coffee and he switches in the Folgers coffee. <laughs> <laughs>